Well, uh, welcome back to the Wokademia podcast. Today, I today I have. Uh, should I start over? Start over. Oh yeah, sorry. Um, uh, welcome back to the Wokademia podcast. Uh, today we're uh, very happy to be joined by Todd Zwicky. He's a law professor at George Mason University, extremely well published, and he has a background in law and economics, amongst other things. Um, and before, we're always supposed to start uh, our public events now with a land acknowledgement. Um, <laughs> and uh, at this point, I don't see how it can get any worse, so let's just give the campus back to the Comanches. I'm all for that. <laughs> Uh, so, on that note, Todd, uh, Todd's going to talk to us a bit about woke law, and then we'll have a, a discussion on that. Uh, well, thanks. It's great to be here. And uh, this is something I got interested in about a year ago to try to figure out what what the essence of woke law is, because um, woke ideas are out there, but it has not really um, got as much traction in a lot of places as in law. And law is the sort of the, the, the real test for these sorts of ideas, because that's where the rubber really hits the road. Um, and we're seeing it, and people are trying to understand, if you look around the country, for example, at all these prosecutors that we hear so much about who are soft on crime, and uh, with ideas like uh, divvying up board seats and public corporations by uh, diversity, um, and just a whole host of ideas that kind of fly under the same flag that we can call woke law, although apparently they don't like that branding, so they're trying to rebrand it to get away from that idea. Um, and so I wanted to figure out what it was, and in particular to figure out, is this just old wine in new bottles, um, old ideas from the 60s and 70s, you know, Ralph Nader and uh, ideas like that, or is there something new here? And um, and I think it's a little bit of both, but there is something new here. Um, and I think it's a very powerful set of ideas and threatening, very threatening set of ideas to capitalism, the rule of law, freedom generally. And it's it's threatening for, for two real reasons, which is first is there is a kernel of truth to some of the things uh, uh, that these these people say. And second, it is a internally coherent set of ideas. Uh, and so if you were to take, say, my ideas, you know, basically a Hayekian a believer in the rule of law and spontaneous order uh, in the free society and take it and turn it upside down, he would get woke law. And so basically to the same extent that that my ideas, I feel like are a coherent whole that lead to freedom, they have basically the exact opposite set of ideas that are internally coherent and makes it very um very uh, challenging. And so I've identified three real elements of uh, this kind of coherent worldview. The first is that uh, hierarchies are largely arbitrary and corrupt and reflect power and privilege, not competence and merit. Uh, and so this is the kind of idea that basically your race or your gender or your sexuality is just as good of a qualification to be on a board of directors, for example, of a public corporation. Because if hierarchies if are not competence-based, if hierarchies are based on privilege, status, uh, that sort of thing, um, then that makes sense. And we could talk about that uh, to, in their view, and that makes sense. And obviously, this is where there's a kernel of truth, uh, which is hierarchies are somewhat arbitrary, right? The uh, the the children of the pow- you know the privileged and powerful um, have some credence, right? I'm going to just go out on a limb and say maybe Hunter Biden 
didn't get on the Burisma board of directors purely on the basis of his knowledge of uh, of uh, oil and gas uh, in in Ukraine. So we know that there are things like that. The second idea is that processes and procedures, which have been the heart of sort of the liberal society as we've understood it since the uh, uh, 18th century, such as the rule of law, constitutional rules, extra legal norms of fairness, equality, um, all these sorts of things, those are all suspect. Uh, to, to the woke world because they are status quo and privilege preserving arbitrary rules um, and they should all be subordinated to the idea of equity and results, not equality and opportunity. And so this is what creates this sort of doubt, cast legitimacy on um, or a doubt on all of legitimacy uh, so that, for example, the criminal justice system should be judged not by whether or not trials are fair. Um, but whether or not trials get the right result according to what the woke people think should be the uh, the right uh, the right result, um, and this is for example why free speech doesn't make any sense to the woke idea, and I hope that's something we'll come back back to later, um, which has very deep roots uh, in this, and um, is one of the great places where I think we've misunderstood what they are doing. I think the third idea that is a key idea here is that uh, uh, individuals are not rational, autonomous thinkers and choosers who are responsible for their own actions and beliefs, but we are fundamentally shaped and fundamentally creatures of our identity and environment. So we cannot, for example, reason with each other. Um, uh, we cannot sort of, you know, that a, a, a black transgendered person cannot meaningfully have a conversation with a, you know, cisgendered white male to come to any shared sense of truth. Number one, because there is no truth. And second, because we are so shaped by our our environments that we are unable to kind of cross those uh, identitarian uh, uh, lines. And so this is one of the things we see this idea that, that we're not really rational thinkers. This underlies a lot of these criminal justice reform ideas, right? If you don't believe that people are responsible for their own actions, it's a pretty short line to basically say all criminal law is um, is unjust, illegal, improper, right? Because you basically say, what choice does somebody have if they're the victim of an oppressive um, uh, um, uh, system? Um, and so I think this is what animates a lot of these things uh, in these big cities where we've seen these huge crime surges um, is a rationale that um, the idea of individual responsibility for criminal behavior, for example, is not a meaningful uh, concept. So we're seeing in a number of these places where these ideas very quickly filtered down into um, uh, on the ground uh, impacts. So um, and so that's you know and, and these are all ideas they have. Uh, um, as I said, there's some credence to them. There is some legitimacy uh, to, to to each of these. Uh, and the problem is then the challenge is how do we deal with that? How do we acknowledge the the kernels of truth without the kernels of truth sort of expanding and taking over everything uh, and essentially effectively destroying um, this great civilization uh, that we've built up. Right, well, well, thanks. That's a, a great introduction. Maybe that's a segue into the, the, the first um, question. You, you keep going back to this, you know, there's some legitimacy to some of the complaints. Can we interpret this as sort of like you know, it seems like it's if things are not perfect, right. then the only solution <laughs> is give us all power. Is, is that part of that? Is, 
does, is that what's kind of falling out of this system? Because uh, it is, you know, th- this idea that things aren't perfect doesn't seem that novel. It's like you, we, you know, mechanisms don't always work. There's always unfairness, but they seem to have taken that to a different level. So is that a, is that a fair description? Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And uh, um, I uh, and, and if and if you talk to especially some of the younger people, I, I asked a younger person uh, um, this recently. I said when I was trying to figure this out, I said, what do they want? What do they want? When will they be satisfied, right? Is it a certain economic power or whatever? Uh, and she thought for a minute, very thoughtful kid and um, high school kid, and said, uh, um, when it's their turn to be in charge, mm. when when the oppressors um, have taken their turn as the oppressed uh, for some period of time. And so that's the that's the the weird part about it, Rich, is that, uh, um, that they don't really have a positive agenda. It's more of a destructive agenda, which is sort of a payback uh, type thing. Um, and one of the things that, that is especially galling and I think, frankly, uh, appalling about the fact that this woke ideology has become sort of an elite sort of uh, idea is who is the one who ends up suffering? It's actually the people they claim to speak for, right? The low-income minorities, immigrants, the ones who have the least power in society. We see this, for example, in this recent thing with the uh, you know San Francisco school board getting recalled. It was basically working-class families who, who mm-hmm. said, enough, we want our kids to learn, not be indoctrinated. Um, we see this in who's bearing the brunt of the crime in the big cities who are coming about, uh, or, you know, being suffered under all these sorts of things. And so there is this kind of posturing about it uh, that kind of goes along with it that sort of throws the people they claim to be speaking for under the bus. And partly it has to do with the fact is they don't really have any coherent sense of what would be better uh, than we have um, and whether what they're actually doing is making things better or worse for the people they claim to be uh, helping. Yeah. So that's an interesting uh, um, observation on uh, on their objectives because I with the sort of people who are not enthusiastic about these woke ideas but are seem more sympathetic there's this I, I hear a lot of this discussion of there's a trade-off between you know they, they 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 interpret their system as saying there's a trade-off between individual freedoms and the need to help marginalized groups but I, you know I, I have a sense that when you really look at it the sort of hatred for <laughs> the sort of regular working class seems to be driving especially on a campus like the, the sort of things people say about like <clears throat> regular working class Types uh, that seems like the simpler, sort of more parsimonious model, because exactly they're, they're pushing policies that very much hurt regular people, but also, you know, incidentally hurt the, these marginalized classes. So it does seem like the revenge and the hate maybe is a bit more to it than than any type of actual concern for the marginalized. And I, I think that's right. And and so what you see is uh, the other part of this is that the elites, the establishment, the um, uh, the people who have the wealth to opt out, right, say to send their kids to private school in mm-hmm. San Francisco while they vote for school board uh, people who will shut down the public schools and do all this sort of stuff. Um, partly what it is is they realize it doesn't really threaten them. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the rich people, they're going to they're gonna get their board seats. Uh, they're going to get their kids, to buy their kids into to, to college if they need to do that. Um, and so basically- We have a system for that. You just pay to make it look like he's on the tennis yeah. team. You're, you're <laughs> that's right. Uh, that's, no, it's, it's all well established. That, that, that's right. Yeah. And so basically they, you know, they've kind of come up with a good racket here where they can sort of, you know, virtue signal is exactly the right word, where they make all these noises, but they're largely in insulated for the consequences mm-hmm. of their own policy. And so it really is, I think a lot of it is, this is their way of basically turning up their nose at ordinary working class people while they show how noble they are by making other people sacrifice uh, um, their opportunities uh, and that sort of thing. And particularly, it, it seems particularly effective at making sure sort of the striving working class, the, like the kid who might make it into you know into the managerial class and the leadership class gets you know crushed right. on his way up because you can you know throw him off overboard as a racist while right. uh, your your kid who's had all the polished training to say the right thing goes on so it does it is kind of I mean, look seems like at, a bit of a coalition going. Okay. Yeah, I mean, look at the uh, the alliance to basically get rid of standardized tests mm-hmm. uh, in college admissions. Um, you have sort of the woke crowd who supports that for their reasons, but then the rich people know uh, the less the less merit there is, the more uh, the more money and connections yeah. uh, matters. Um, and so there, I think there is kind of an interesting projection here, which is um, one of the things that's striking to me on this first point I made about hierarchies are largely. Uh, uh, corrupt and arbitrary and reflect power and not merit is um, uh, uh, Emily Eakins did a fascinating uh, poll a few years ago at the Cato Institute. She's a brilliant pollster. Um, and she asked um, uh, people's attitudes towards capitalism. And she asked the question, um, how do people get rich in America? And um, self-described progressives said the three greatest causes of wealth in America are family connections, inheritance and luck. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and I think some of that may be projection. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> if, if you're a progressive, that's you're probably progressive, true because right. you don't have the ability to. Sorry. Right. No, uh, um, but, um, but if you have that worldview... Mm-hmm. Um, you are not going to be a capitalist, uh, mm-hmm. and and what they discover, what she discovered, is among younger uh, people, that's the, the on all those questions is twenty percent higher among sort of millennials and Gen Z types than it was among the public at, uh, at large. And of course, conservatives said things like hard work, mm-hmm. uh, education, stuff like that. And then when they asked why are people poor, the primary answer was discrimination, um, uh, um, an unfair economic system. Those were the first two and then lack of education. So what we're talking about is a really comprehensive worldview uh, that these people hold that is fundamentally incompatible with um, this idea of striving, as you said, or that people can get ahead um, or that uh, you know the, the free market is in any way a, a, a fair and equitable system. And again, this is one of those things where their, their outrage is appropriate in the sense that we do have a system now that is too cronyist, right? We have too much crony capitalism in this country. We have too many regulations that favor entrenched interest, that lock people out by occupational licensing, by you know policies that drive up the cost of college. I mean, so many things really are problematic. But 
they're, the, they're caused by government regulation, almost every single one of them, not by the economic system. It's by the interventions that, uh, that, uh, that do it. And so they've kind of diagnosed a problem, yes, but the solution is not to create a system that's even more Byzantine and more expensive so only the wealthiest and most sophisticated know how to get ahead um, and make their way through that bureaucracy. And that's sort of back to the, oh, there are problems, but instead of incrementally fixing the problems using the toolkit we've developed since the Enlightenment, Right. We just have to throw everything out and assume this half-baked stuff that we've come up with, um, which I would say, you know, you're able to put this in a coherent framework. Do you think they have, you know, is this sort of something, is your coherent framework something they're conscious of, or is this just, <laughs> like, does it take too much IQ to fit it all into the... Um, I'm not, I mean, it's, I never it's funny you say that, that which is, um, I, I feel like I understand it better than they do, mm-hmm. having kind of yeah, dissected it and kind of looked at the, the, the history of it, right? Which is, they're, they're, it's not quite even clear where these ideas come from. And you and I have had this conversation before uh, uh, flying, right? Which is, where do these ideas come from? They seem to like just germinate mm-hmm. on Twitter somewhere. And like, all of a sudden, something that you never heard of before just becomes sort of woke doctrine, dogma, right? That and you then can't it, and question recolonizes universities so quickly it's like the, the universities aren't even, you know aren't even the thought leaders anymore as much as the like accelerants and right followers i don't know if you've ever read foucault's pendulum but it starts to remind me of this it's a uh, umberto echo book about all these conspiracy theories and it turns out they have to go to the guy who you know, all these people think they're in a conspiracy and they have to go to the guy who's studying the conspiracy and made it all up to figure out what's really like. <laughs> well, it's just, true. They, they don't. <laughs> right. It has that sort of. Well, they've got this great insane feel to it, you know. And there is. I mean, you mentioned the academy, and and this is why you know a lot of people say, well, isn't this just Marxism, right? Isn't, how is this any different? And the difference is, Marxism, communism failed because it made essentially empirically testable right. uh, uh, um, predictions, right? We will make you wealthy and free, right? Mm-hmm. And it turned out that was obviously untrue. These guys are more subtle, which is they basically deny that, right? That there's no way to do it. And so good example to your question, what, you know, they can diagnose a problem, but what's the solution? Here's what I like to think of. Let's think about a thought experiment. Let's say we go into uh, you know, downtown Philadelphia or Chicago or something, or take two cities, and in city A, we keep doing what we've been doing for the last 50 years, but mm-hmm. more, right? We do more we do more regulation. We do more power to the teachers' unions. We do more power to the public employee unions. We have you know layers of regulation, occupational licensing, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, more land use controls, right? And then we go in City B, and we get rid of the teachers' unions and allow school choice. And we get rid of the uh, public employee unions, and we get rid of the minimum wage, and we get rid of uh, occupational licensing. And I'll tell you, if we came back in 10 years, who's going to be doing better, the people in City A or in City B, right? And I'd be willing to bet a lot of money that you're going to be a lot better off in City B. In fact, I'd buy real estate. <laughs> I'd buy real estate in City B. Uh, that's right. But one of the things that's so interesting about this is the way they approach this is, and, and we see this so much with the pandemic in other areas, is their approach to it as well. Why hasn't it worked for 50 years? We did everything the experts told us we should do, right? Mm-hmm. We should public housing, and we poured money into the schools. We did what the expert told us to do, and things still aren't better. Well, that just shows that these policies are – that these – 
corruptions that these that these ideas are so deeply rooted in American society <clears throat> that they can't even be fixed by normal policy goals. We have to re-engineer all of society, <clears throat> people's psychology to go after systemic racism. It's so deeply rooted that we've got to go all the way to systemic racism and not just change the policies. Um, and that's um, what's really kind of diabolical about it is that, you know, they can just say more, 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 more. And then when you say, well, people aren't racist anymore, they say, ah, but they're implicitly right. racist. And they're why separate. isn't everything perfect then? Right. <clears throat> right. Uh, and, and that does get to the, this question of how they use evidence, like they, uh, which I think, which I'm going to lead into a discussion of like what it, what is the appropriate role for this stuff at a university or in education? Because there's been talk about sort of removing some of this. Uh, my sense is like the 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 process through which we reach decisions, even with people we really disagree with, mm. has some you know. We want it tied to some sort of reasoning and evidence-based thing. They don't seem; they seem fairly explicitly rejecting that. And then one wonders if you don't even want to have that type of conversation. What are you doing in an institution that exists only for having that type of conversation? Yeah, and this is an area in which um, understanding what where we have those who believe in free speech uh, and the like, we have kind of failed to understand what what they're saying. We've been making arguments that are somewhat non-responsive, and I think, and I don't have a good response to them, but I at least understand the, the what they're saying, which is it goes back to Herbert Marcuse uh, in the 60s and this uh, idea that Marcuse had, uh, which was um, repressive tolerance. Uh, and basically his view was, consistent with what I was saying here, is that free speech favors the privileged. That free speech takes, in his case, it was class, right, because he was a Marxist. Now it's identitarian. But basically, free speech takes, um, so-called free speech takes place in a given framework of what people see as um, their worldview. And so basically what he says is that free speech basically privileges those who are already privileged. And so it's not an equal playing field. And so his view was you need to repress, you need to keep um, uh, those who are in positions of power um, from speaking and allow just the other side uh, to speak. Right, because to try to rectify this power imbalance, and so their view, as you said, is they genuinely um, reject the fundamental premise of the liberal university, uh, which is the idea of a shared uh, search for truth, the idea that we are two individuals rationally trying to understand truth and coming to some agreement or at least understanding. They deny all of that, uh, and they say all it is is a vehicle for power. And so this is what leads them to these crazy and very, very dangerous ideas like speech is violence and violence mm-hmm. is speech, right? Or that it's appropriate to use physical force to restrain uh, speakers or that speech itself can be um, uh, can be um, harmful, right? Uh, uh, the the entire thing. idea of inclusion as it's used now seems to be – you know, to define certain speech as unacceptable, and, right. and you know, it, but then, you know, the you know, it does seem to get you stuck in the situation where th- there's such a desire to have on, on on what I guess we could say our side is like as big and open a conversation as yep. possible. But can you know, can you really have a conversation with people whose sole purpose in the conversation is to somehow defeat you? 
and silence you and use whatever administrative tools available? Like, are these just things that have to be separated completely? That, that's exactly right, which is that they don't see a conversation as a conversation. Mm-hmm. They see a conversation as a kind of dominance uh, interaction, uh, which is either your ideas are prevailing or my ideas are prevailing, and there is zero-sum game, and they reject the rules we play by, right? So right. you mentioned evidence. What we think is, all right, well, there are there's a certain framework to the kind of arguments you make where you appeal to evidence that are, that both people kind of objectively can look at and reach their own determination. But they reject that whole idea, right, which mm-hmm. is they say that just makes some things uh, more important than others. And so, for example, this is where you get this idea that sort of my narrative, my personal story and my subjective interpretation of the world is just as valuable as your multivariate regression, mm-hmm. uh, right, uh, because your multivariate regression is just subjective also. That's just what you think is proof. I think, you know, you know, my, my personal story is just as uh, compelling as your uh, is your. Uh, regression. So. Yeah, and sometimes it's even, I think it may be even worse than that. So one of my favorite quotes I've plucked off from uh, some of the discussions that I've I've heard is, uh, don't let facts get in the way of effectiveness. <laughs> so that is something that's actually taught uh, oh, wow. as part of, you know, how do you, how should you as a professor get your ideas out there? Is it, you know, you, 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 maintaining your integrity and sticking to facts is not actually admirable if it interferes with your ability to push this. And these, you know, and that's, pretty out, that mess. is a great point. And one of the things that, um, that, that is really important about this is that, that one of the things that we see here is that, um, that there are clear bounds on what are considered now acceptable academic research questions. Mm-hmm. And so for a long time, the people in the hard sciences, for example, just said, oh, well, that's also those goofballs over there mm-hmm. in, uh, in the English department, right? They're not going to touch here yeah. in biology <laughs> and everything else, right? Well, it has crept over to that, to all those, those hard sciences. And, and you put your finger on why, which is that it's not that, um, uh, that what they're especially concerned about is there are certain areas that are not allowed to be the subject of research, not because they might be false, but because they might be true, yeah. right? Uh, and 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 that's exactly what you want to repress is ideas from science, for example, or economics or anything else that um, would reinforce what they see as the prevailing dominance hierarchy. And so that's, a, so that's what's scary about this is it's truth right. that they want to repress, not falsity. Uh, yeah, there was recently a astronomy professor here tried to come up with a way to have objective metrics for early career success that would predict future success. And before anyone even saw the outcomes, they, they made him withdraw the paper and withdraw his book on the paper <laughs> just out of the risk that, that his findings would not uh, line up with their narrative. And I think like, it's shocking that that's, and that's just considered okay. Right. Nothing happens to the people who started that campaign. No one says, you're not a real scientist, you don't belong here. They're, they're the heroes because they've gotten this person right. to withdraw. It's stunning. I mean, if, you know, I first read into this stuff when basically somebody ran a regression got the wrong coefficient, and suddenly these investigated. It's oh, like, my yeah, God. I mean, it, it, it really is that far. It's like facts are not what we're well, looking think, for. And then and then that sort of leads into my uh, – oh, sorry, did you have- Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you think about this controversy over um, – 
BLM, right? And the, the, these, but these very prominent uh, papers by Roland Fryer, the, mm-hmm. uh, the Harvard economist on police shootings, for example. I would, I would bet that if he had tried to publish those papers today rather than three or four years ago, whenever he published them, he couldn't get them published. Mm-hmm. Not, uh, you know, no matter the fact that they are the state-of-the-art research on police use of force against uh, criminal suspects, they get the wrong coefficient, as you say. It's interesting how when you come up with those sorts of results— all sorts of other completely random allegations that are unrelated <laughs> suddenly crop up. I've noticed that, that that's a bit of a pattern. I mean, that, that is you know that is a mechanism. Like you know, if your coefficient goes one way, every last little bit of your personal life is going to be dragged out. Whereas if it goes the other way, you can get away with anything. So that you know, we we can trust us. We can massage coefficients. It's not that hard. So if you you know if you put the incentive structure like that, I mean you know it's easy to lie with. Econometrics, right, uh, right? And so, if if every you know, if your life is ruined, if you come up with a positive coefficient, and you get a prize if you come up with a negative coefficient, guess what? Everyone's going to be doing. We don't right. have that much spine here. So we, yeah, we we don't. That's um, true. Possibly present company accepted. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I did want to hit uh, related to this in the sort of almost like the rotting out of the intellectual process. There's another element of like. The, the enthusiasm for using kind of bureaucratic measures and capturing, like, we have things that are not, that are just, you know, they're implicit rules on how these institutions work. And they, you know, they're very excited about using research misconduct investigations yeah. over, like, things that make people feel marginalized or they'll set up, you know, they'll start reporting you as a, as for harassment if you say something they don't like. So there, there doesn't seem to be, a respect for the basic institutions right. that we've had and right. this desire to you know, capture them. Is that something you see in this? A- absolutely. Uh, yeah. And these, these, these tools, these formal processes and stuff kind of sit around like kind of a loaded gun, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which is that they're there to deal with very particular cases. Uh, and then you end up routinizing them, um, you know, or as we say now, weaponizing them to uh, for, for other reasons. And this is one of the points I made about um, getting rid of or, or distrust of process-based rules, right, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. a lot of this and all these questions we have now about institutional legitimacy um, are up in the air, whether it's the electoral process or – I was shocked as a lawyer. I, I mean, it literally – was flabbergasted that a large number of people um, on the left are talking about court packing, the Supreme mm-hmm. Court, um, which is just something I never thought um, we would be coming back to in this country, right? But, but, but it um, lines up with that, like if everything is dominance and everything is power, exactly and it's, right. not about, it's not about reaching equilibria where we can have these kind of balanced exactly. interests that, that work for a while. Right? That, I mean, that's right. And so, so much of this, as you said, rests on these informal norms of how we interact and, uh, according to certain rules in a community. And a university has certain rules, right, mm-hmm. which is traditionally, which is free speech. Um, you follow the evidence where it goes. People are supposed to have a thick skin about ideas that uh, um, uh, make them uh, you know that, that threaten them. Uh, you you counter speech with better speech. Mm-hmm. All these sorts of ideas. And what you're talking about now is uh, deviating from those rules, defecting from those rules. Which is basically saying if you're playing by those rules, 
I'm going to play by different rules, which is I'm going to invoke formal processes. I'm going to get you fired. I'm going to mm-hmm. get you punished. I'm going to get you discredited, right? Um, I'm going to make sure you don't get grad students and research I'm grants and all that sort of stuff. I'm going to throw smoke bombs at your event. Yeah. This has happened here once. The, the, yeah, oh, it has a really— Not to us, yeah, but to another group to another on group. campus. Yeah. Right, and so it's—and uh, um, in their view, right, in their view, it's all justified because it's all power, as you mm-hmm. said. It, like, it's, it's win at all costs, and so they're allowed to use whatever— they need to use. And now what's what's dangerous about this is that is an unstable equilibrium. Mm-hmm. If one side is essentially using, let's just call it force or coercion, right, through things like disciplinary processes and that sort of thing, the the other side has a choice, which is either they continue to be pummeled, mm-hmm. right, or they fight back. Um, and uh, um, and it's inevitable at some point they're going to say enough, right? Mm-hmm. And then if people are still baffled as to why Donald Trump got elected president, that's the dynamic right there, right? Which is as clumsy as he was and as you know crude as he was, people said, at least this guy's fighting back. He's not like Mitt Romney and uh, John McCain, right? Mm-hmm. That's the box that they put you in is if they continue to use these processes and be aggressive, destroy people's careers, destroy people's reputations, it is inevitable at some point that uh, um, people are going to stop taking it and they're going to start fighting back, in which case we have a benign outcome, which is equilibrium gets reestablished, but we also know as economists that can also Mm -hmm. lead to the Hatfields and McCoys. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's striking. Some of the things that are going on here now, we've gone so far to the suppression of all of their ideas and the 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 capture of the curriculum and turning it into activism and then the moment anyone from outside says oh maybe it's time to write the ship they get very upset about any possibility of reciprocity but i wonder how long do they really think they can just wait having you know cheated on all the rules having converted having gone from teaching to becoming activist trainers and not expect i mean it's been decades where the you know what you would call the right has just sat around and let them do this. Eventually, you, right. you can't get that indignant that eventually someone's going, "Oh no, maybe we need to monitor right. uh, this a little bit." But um, we'll see. Yeah, and 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 we and we keep we keep seeing that, right? I mean, one of the things that's striking to me is, um, as again as a lawyer, is to follow the debate over judicial nominations mm-hmm. in in Mitch McConnell, which is. You know, going all the way back to Robert Bork in the 80s, Bork, Thomas, uh, the Democrats um, consistently changed the rules when it came to judicial nominations, right? First mm-hmm. they trashed Bork, and then they did the surprise hit on Clarence Thomas. Then they filibustered judicial nominees under Bush. Then they reached a filibuster deal, and then they broke the filibuster deal, and then they they uh, did the nuclear option for, uh, for, 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 for judges in order to pack the D.C. circuit. Um, and finally it came around, and... And, you know, McConnell first held up Garland, right? And basically everybody was outraged. Mm-hmm. And McConnell said, look, back at during the Bush administration, Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden said, um, if George Bush tries to nominate somebody, we're not going to have a confirmation hearing. And McConnell said, you know, it turns out I believe them. <laughs> 
which is they've pretty well established that they can be trusted when they say they're going to mm-hmm. do something like that. So it's not up to yeah. me to sit here and pretend like they're playing by the rules when they wouldn't do it. And he said exactly the same thing when it came to the Barrett nomination, mm-hmm. uh, moving the Barrett nomination through the Senate. And so, and what's so striking about it is the outrage that basically, oh my God, Mitch McConnell is playing by our rules, uh, um, although they would never put it that way. Well, but and especially um, in academia, the like. The outrage there's there seems to be this instinct even for people who are sort of on our side to have this outrage at us for like <laughs> if, if you do you know, it's okay that they right. play by their nasty rules and and defect right. all the time but the moment you know anyone tries to push back oh no now now we're right. we're just as bad as them we're like, just if as I see, bad as them if I say the word just as bad as them again my head's going to <laughs> uh, uh, and a good example I, that I've written on is I did a piece a couple weeks ago uh, in Newsweek um, called uh, Cancel Culture Comes to Banking mm-hmm. so many of our yeah, listeners may be familiar with what's going on in Canada right now uh, where they have basically shut off the bank accounts of the, the truckers uh, who are protesting um, and I said a few weeks ago this is going to happen this mm-hmm. This is coming to the United States. And literally the day after I published that article, Mike Lindell, the My, my uh, Pillow guy, yeah. got his bank account uh, uh, canceled. But this has been going on for a while, and um, um, and, it, and it's inevitable, right? right. It's, a, it's a tool they have. Um, and then you hear the gonna, criticism, oh, but it's a private company, so they can do whatever they that's what, well, yeah, they well, say it's a private company, but here's yeah, my banking point, right? Is not a private, banking yeah. is pretty far from a private <laughs> yeah, company, right? There's barriers to entry. There's all these restrictions. Um, government and, um, Yeah, you try to start a bank and yeah. tell me uh, uh, what it's uh, yeah. what it's like, and so and so. I think we really need to be thinking in terms and in, in, in you know, in naively, the response is well, you know, they would never do that because they know that if the shoe were on the other foot, uh, yeah, that it would be used against them, and it never, never is, no. right? Yeah. It's just like speech. Kind codes on campus. In theory, it could be used against the left, uh, but yeah. in practice, everybody knows yeah. it's not it, for the it reason you're saying. turns out the people who are committed to free speech in principle are less inclined <laughs> to use uh, Who'd have thought? But we've right. got to, you know, the, something has to restore. Right. And so that's an unstable equilibrium, right? That at some point, something has to give. Either you have to stop canceling other people's bank accounts, or it does, in fact, go yeah. both ways. Yeah, yeah, I've wondered, you know, there's such an asymmetry. Like, if you're Political ideology controls an industry that's sort of oligopolistic, and you know uh, the the network platforms, banking. You have this extra tool that allows you to implement your policies. Where if if you're in a disaggregated industry, like I mean, you know, if the right. truckers could coordinate to deplatform their opponents, they would get <laughs> anything they wanted immediately. But since that's not a concentrated industry, right. they can't pull that off. I mean, Jimmy right. Hoffa. Back in the day, so I mean, right. maybe we have to go back to something like that, where the the sort of victims of the deplatforming figure out how to build their own right. ability to engage in the deplatforming. But you know that you know when you start getting going down, I mean, that is it is an that's exactly it's an ugly path, but it sure doesn't seem any. It sure seems less ugly than the path of just giving up all the time. Yeah, and that's what scares me, right? It is an ugly path. And people ask me about this. They said, are we going to have two economies, a blue economy and a red economy? Are we going to have this constant tit-for-tat spiral? And and my answer is, I I hope not. Uh, But I don't have any better solutions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I said, I talked about this cancel culture and banking and the issues involved in it and talked about some things. And people said two things. Number one was, well, aren't you afraid that if the left gets in power and we give them these tools, they'll be used against us? And my first response is, (laughs) 
They're not yeah. waiting. Yeah. They're already so, using when it. When was the it's last like, time they did not yeah, use why, a tool? Yeah, well, it's like they're already using it. So, you know, it's like it's not like they're waiting for us mm-hmm. to give them this power because they're doing it uh, um, yeah. already. But the, uh, but the second point is, is yeah, this is a dangerous game. It is a, it, it is a very scary thing to think about that the, to play these tit-for-tat games and how bad they might go. But here, here's my, my view is um, I don't know if it'll work or not. What I do know is that what we're doing right now is not working. Mm-hmm. If we keep doing what we're doing, then it just is, it's a one-way it's ratchet conceding. that just gets worse and worse maybe more slowly than it otherwise would. But I am confident that, you know, and, and I for a long time thought, well, you know, it's like this is too dangerous. You know, we need to uh, just kind of play by by the established rules. But I'm not persuaded that that's a successful strategy anymore when we're playing a completely different game, mm-hmm. different asymmetric type game. And I'm not saying I have all the answers. What I do know is that what what we're doing right now is not working, yeah. um, and we need another strategy. So we don't, we don't have all the answers. Obviously, we're not going to fix society, but let's hone in. Like, what do we do about the universities? If we yeah. just finish. Like, how if you if you had like just in a few lines, what what do we do to create something that's actually worth operating? Something that goes back to being something that creates value. Yeah, I've been banging my head against this for a while. But well, I would say, um, uh, well, so the first thing is, one thing I'm particularly proud of that we adopted at uh, uh, Antonin Scalia Law School, George Mason, where I teach, um, we adopted a statement of faculty principles, um, which goes beyond the Chicago principles. Um, um, and our idea was to essentially make it actionable uh, by mm-hmm. students um, to, uh, uh, to basically say, here's the rules of the game. Um, uh, we're, we, that we are committed to free speech in the classroom. Um, one of the points we made specifically in that is that um, that the classroom is inherently um, is inherently a power dynamic, right? Which is faculty have a legitimate uh, claim to authority and hierarchy in the classroom um, in terms of what the curriculum is, what the syllabus is going to be. At the same time, that brings responsibilities on us not to abuse that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think students have a right not to be proselytized in the classroom. And so I think trying to come up with some way of, uh, of, of that working, and we tried to do that essentially uh, um, at, um, at, at the law school. I think the second thing is it is really important to do the kind of things you guys are doing at the Salem Center, uh, which is to create um, a, a, a group of faculty um, who um, can sort of uh, um, provide an alternative viewpoint um, but also, they have to be people who have courage, uh, who have um, uh, you know uh, tough skin, uh, who are, are are smart and um, are willing to stick their their neck out uh, in order to, uh, to to do it. I think that um, third, and, and related to that, is I think it really is going to have to be the case that new institutions will be founded. Um, whether it is new departments on campus, mm-hmm. those are always dangerous because. The administration is always so hostile uh, to those uh, those sorts of things, or whether it's new universities or online universities or whatever the case may be. And of course, what you run up against there is the the um, the accreditation cartel. Mm-hmm. So um, so I think you know experimentation is really important. I'm not sure that I know what the what the answer is, um, but I do think that. Um, 
also, I think being willing to use the tools that are available. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, as you mm-hmm. said, the the left has been willing to use those tools, and whether it is EEOC, uh, whether it, you know, and uh, discrimination, whether it's pushing. Um, for state laws that uh, pr- protect um, uh, political uh, ideology as a protected class um, for employment, but also just sort of universities, um, all those sorts of things. I, I think that um, th- this idea of sort of thinking that government doing nothing is always the most protective mm-hmm. of liberty is not necessarily a viable strategy. And perhaps it's the case that there are things where the small, you know, the 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 outliers, the the small minorities in terms of sense of right now, that people who believe in the free society are a minority among faculty on campuses. I'm not sure about with, with students, but but you know, giving them tools to be able to protect themselves from being uh, discriminated against, fired, and all those sorts of things. Um, that's that's the next frontier. I think is what do we do about it? I'm not sure, um, and that's what I hope people will be talking about, um, coming up with solutions. Well, yeah, well, then to be continued. Todd, thank you very much. Thank you. Great. And uh, and we'll see you next time. Great.